Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There are many hallmarks into what makes a typical Pat Murray investigation. During his 30-year tenure, He's encountered many different things. But there were certainly some reoccurring themes that became apparent during his career. Each tragic crime was followed up with the most tenacious eye to detail imaginable. There were 14,000 logs a day, and we had to go through each one of those logs. Spending long nights analysing and reanalyzing minuscule pieces of information. Things others may have glossed over. He also had a penchant for leading cases that were filled with dramatic twists and turns. Things nobody would have expected. Suspects on the run. And he says, I knew you wouldn't have access to the CCTV at the airport in Belfast. Series of affairs. Looked him straight in the eye and moved real close to him. And I said, Are you having an affair, Joe? It's what makes Pat's career so absorbing. But one thing, and a thing that totally distinguished him from other Gardaí, was his willingness to rely on expert help outside of the force. That might seem trivial, but it's not something the Gardaí have often been quick to do. Think about the cell-side analyst, the one from Rachel Callaly's murder. It's likely that Joe O'Reilly would still be walking free today without his help. In this, our fourth case, Pat finds himself in a situation where help and expertise is needed, now more than ever. And only the world's best scientist in his field will help bring justice to a grieving family. And his solicitor said, uh, my client wishes to say something which is against my advice. When you attack someone with such a ferocious nature, that length of period of time, there's only going to be one outcome. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Ian Doyle. If you've enjoyed this series so far, please take a moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. Or even better, tell a friend about the show. We rejoined Pat Murray in August 2012. He's still DI of the Loud Division and loving the challenge. But truth be told, it's hard to love the constant nature of it. Day or night, he's always on the ball, never knowing when the next phone call might come in. 
I was fast asleep like and this has happened on many is an occasion during my career that you're asleep and the phone rings and you look and you see it's the station number or wherever and you just know it's bad news like you know Pat picked up the phone and I says well go ahead and he says look we have a murder on our hands here there's a woman dead and she's lying here in the hallway of the house and she's naked only for a pair of underwear our clothes are strewn around and there's some outside the front door. He looked for more detail. Who else was present in the house? Her husband's here. He's uh, covered in blood. She's, there's a lot of blood at the scene. She looks as if she's been badly injured. There's blood splattering on the walls and that, like, you know. And he had blood splattering on his legs, uh, which was explained to me, but... That may well have been explained by uh, him interacting with his wife while she was bleeding and that, you know. Pat was told that at 18 minutes past three in the morning, a call came through to the emergency services. The woman's 14-year-old daughter rang pleading for help. She said uh, to the ambulance, men came in and attacked my mammy and she's not breathing, like, you know. And So uh, that's the scenario that was being painted for us. There was a crucial question Pat would now have to make sure he gets right. Should the husband be arrested at the scene? Of course you'd have your suspicions. There's the husband covered in blood. There's blood all in the hall. She's like naked, more or less. But he has a story and it's been backed up by his daughter. So in my mind, you'd be foolhardy to go down the rest just there because he's blood on his clothing. Over his career... He'd learned that a premature arrest can majorly hamper an investigation. There was no doubt that this man was a suspect. The scene looked awful. But Pat needed to stay at least one step ahead of him. Keep his poker face, as it were. The less details that they know allows Pat to plot his own strategy. I said, take a statement off him, a witness statement, and uh, take his clothes from him, because there may be evidence of these intruders on his clothing and he said fair enough and I says just let him go let him go with any murder investigation that occurs in Ireland during the night a press conference is held the following morning at 10am Pat's had the misfortune of sitting through scores of these throughout his career the media might ask questions but there's very little that can be revealed before he'd be taking the stage he needed to go and view the crime scene for himself. There's huge benefit in actual going to a scene because a scene talks to you. There's a degree of uh, silence, the type of silence you'll never hear anywhere else at a, a murder scene. When you're standing there and there's a deceased at your feet and you're thinking a couple of hours earlier they were alive and it's really the struggle between wanting to live and the evilness of wanting to kill, you know, it's captured there in that silence. And I always like to immerse myself in that silence to see what I can see and what I can feel. He drove the short distance to Dundalk, where the murder took place. It was an ordinary three-bed semi-detached house in a busy estate full of residents from all walks of life. The deceased woman was Jacqueline Quinn McDonough, 
a 34-year-old mother of three. She had bright blonde hair and big blue eyes with a wide infectious smile, one she wore proudly in photos scattered all across the house. Her body lay just behind the front door, stretched out on her back with her feet towards the entrance. You know, it was quite obvious that she was absolutely battered. In actual fact, I never seen a woman so badly beaten in all my life. Like she was purple. Her skin was purple from her ankles right up. You know, uh, her whole body was battered. Yellow and purple bruising covered Jacqueline's face and her hair was deeply matted with blood. A gold wedding band lay on her ring finger but there were bruised and swollen mounting pressure amongst its rim. The pathologist who was doing the post-mortem said it to me as well. He says, God, I've never seen a woman so badly beaten. It was a horrific scene, like, you know, but you're standing there and I remember saying to myself, like, what's in a person that will make them do this to another person, like, you know? Jacqueline was married to Michael McDonough and they'd been together for over 15 years. Michael had built a name for himself within the travelling community as one of Ireland's most vicious and relentless bare-knuckle boxers. He was a towering man, at over six foot tall. He had biceps the size of quads and was covered in sleeve tattoos. His head was shaved and also wore a permanently injured nose. He was into bodybuilding and he was quite the the physique of a man physically, of a person who looked after himself, who trained and took steroids and that, you know. And uh, I always believe he was trying to slipstream into his brother's reputation, but never actually made that grade like, you know. Stephen Breen is crime editor for The Irish Sun. Michael Quinn McDonough was very well known across Ireland and indeed in the UK because of his involvement in bare knuckle boxing. But he was also someone who was known to the Gardaí, someone who had a very violent reputation as well, even starred in the film Knuckle, which was about bare knuckle boxing. So he was someone who was making a name for himself. Michael was involved in a series of feuds with other fighters. In fact, just 10 hours prior to his wife's death. He took part in a video calling out men from a rival family. I made you put your hands down. I swear my three children's life. I tell you, you put your hands up and we'll kill you all together. You put down your hands and and I put and I bluffed you boys. I bluffed you. I dragged one of you out of the car, bled you, and I dressed you at night, and I had a knife, and I bluffed you. I bluffed you. He was hated by some travellers. He hated them. They had family feuds. 
someone who had a huge capacity uh, for violence and was a, was a very towering figure wasn't afraid to, to get involved in, in numerous fights. He's someone who also abused alcohol quite a lot uh, as well. Pat had to keep an open mind. Could this be a barbaric act against the family? An act of retaliation? He was up in court actually at the time um, for, for an arson attack and that type of carry on. So uh, he was expecting uh, a revenge attack and uh, This is the way he lived his life. Earlier on that morning, when the emergency services and Gardaí had arrived, those working on the scene were left with a harrowing task to carry out. Jacqueline's three children were upstairs when the attack took place. It's hard to quantify the distress they would have felt. Hearing their mother being repeatedly beaten downstairs. It was horrific and when the guards arrived at the scene, the main priority for them was to get the kids out of the house. The guards had to carry the kids down the stairs, tell the kids to close their eyes because they didn't want them seeing their mother lying in that in a pool of blood and to show that they had been, she had been attacked in such a brutal fashion. The Gardaí formed a chain, weaving down the stairs, and passed each kid through one by one. A haunting experience for everyone involved. Michael's clothes and belongings were taken at the scene, and the house was prepared for forensic investigation. After having looked at it in the format that I take things in, And drawing on my experience from the Rachel O'Reilly murder scene, I knew a blood spatter analyst was required. Pat got in touch with the forensic lab and made contact with Dr John Hode. And I requested that he attend the scene with the Garda Technical Bureau. And I made it perfectly clear that I wanted him to enter the scene and look at the blood spattering and give me a report on what he saw before the technical bureau went in to do their fibre lifts and take fingerprints and all of that type of stuff. Inside the hall door, half a section of garden shears were found lying close to Jacqueline's body, with blood visible on its blade. Dr Hode established it was likely the primary weapon used in the attack. It was clear that she'd been beaten repeatedly and with strong force. And the second thing he said, the attack on her was violent and sustained and that would sort of give you the impression that people running in couldn't have done all they did within you know it was putting Michael McDonough's story a little bit far-fetched when we look at this Jacqueline Quinn McDonough we look at the case where it may have lasted for 80 minutes the attack so that shows you for that over an hour and 20 minutes where you have this sustained level of violence and weapons being used when you attack someone with such a ferocious nature for that length of period of time there's only going to be one outcome I could now throw huge doubt on Michael McDonough's story that people had run in and killed his wife attacked her and left her in that state the Garda Technical Bureau or GTB continued their search of the house 
They needed to build a picture of what happened that night. This could also help Pat build his own picture of what life would have been like for the Quinn McDonough family behind closed doors. They were able to establish that Michael had their house kitted out with an extensive CCTV system. And when the guards asked him that night is the footage, he says, I have a camera out there, but it's not working. But we did discover during the course of the search that there was a video system in operation and it had been smashed. And it was in the bedroom of the deceased and Michael McDonough's. And it became evident to us when that CCTV was examined, there was footage on it of him coming back that night with his wife and children from a family party. And the system stopped working at a time when it had been smashed deliberately or in the course of a dispute or row. In the likely event of any of Michael's ongoing feuds causing trouble on their doorstep, he kept a sizable arsenal of weapons, all scattered around the house. We came across a number of weapons in the house, like knives and hatchets and stuff like that that he had at ha- for handy use if his house was attacked because he was having a feud with other travellers. And in actual fact, when he went to bed each night, he put up a, ca- a full plywood that covered the window. Uh, so if anyone threw a petrol bomb up at its window at the house, it wouldn't get into the room, it would bounce off this plywood. So all his rooms, bedrooms and that, they, they were all fortified by this type of mechanism. Like, you know, so it shows that he was living in fear and his wife was living in fear and God knows what the children like were going through. Another interesting find was an abundance of steroid paraphernalia. Needles, vials, and tablets of all kinds. Which wasn't unusual for Michael McDonough because he was a bare-knuckle fighter. Pat made a note. It was something he'd have to look at in much further detail down the road. Skilled crime scene examiners are able to create an in-depth picture of a scene, and they do this by analysing all the minuscule details around them. Mapping out things like blood splattering, objects at hand, or potential weapons that were used. They were able to establish a dark and cruel account of what Jacqueline's final hours would have entailed. The first thing that they confirmed was that her death would have been prolonged and extremely painful. There were signs of an altercation that may have begun upstairs. And at some point, she'd staggered down the stairs to try and escape the violence. There was blood in one of the bathrooms where there's no doubt that she had washed herself and washed some of the blood away. And then uh, it was evident that, you know, she was attacked again. And this was downstairs and that's where she met her death. And there was quite a pool of blood under her body and around her head and that. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt that the um, murder weapon was a garden shears. It's one of these long-handled ones that you clipped up the edge of a lawn with. And he had it divided in two and he had one half behind the, the, the little chest freezer in the hall and he had it behind that. A landline phone was also found underneath her body when it was removed from the house. she was looking for help, 
and their phone records proved so. She tried ringing her father's phone several times, but it was late at night and he never picked up. Jacqueline also rang 999, but as Michael Curtis, the deputy state pathologist, explained to Pat, she was so weak and badly injured, she wasn't able to communicate her state. Wheezing and gasping, helpless and terrified. He explained to me at the postmortem that the bruising was so severe, the marks were purple. And, like, I never knew this before, but when you're bruising is that oxygen goes to the bruised areas. So her capacity to breed, you know, would substantially interfere with that, like, which would exacerbate her death. But uh, the poor woman, like, you know, I was standing there, I could see a white phone under her body. It was covered in blood. It was a horrific scene. It was also paramount for Pat to obtain and take note of Jacqueline's daughter's phone call. In it, she had stated that three men broke into the house and that's when the attack took place. Pat obtained the audio and found himself in a quiet office to cipher through it. Now, I listened to it and I listened very carefully and I had my headphones on and one thing about being a detective inspector or being any detective or any policeman you have to have the ability to listen. And when I mean listen, I mean listen at a level that it's just beyond the ordinary day of listening. And when I was listening to her telling the ambulance man what was happening, I believed I could hear her being prompted. And I wasn't doubting that, she was being prompted. And the only person in the house at the time that could prompt her was her father. Now, I gave the tape to a number of detectives and I says, I want you to listen carefully to that and tell me what you hear or is there anything unusual? And they all came back and said, she's been prompted. They all listened and they could hear it as well, like, you know. So this is a little girl, I think she was 13 or 14, I'm not sure. She was in fear because she would have witnessed her mother being beaten and her other siblings, who were six and four, I think they could have been, they were witness to it as well. Like So like, can you imagine what was going through their little hearts and little minds listening to what went on? You know, it's horrendous. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the days following the murder, Pat continued digging for more information. By this stage, though, his mind was made up. There was realms of evidence from that night, both circumstantial and forensic, that pointed in the direction of Michael. To build this case further, he knew that it would be important to look outside of the present and dive into their family history. We were able to give evidence that she had fled the house on several occasions and went into refuse uh, shelters to get away from the violence, but never gave her correct name. And that was something that always stuck with me. For 15 years, she had been subjected to a torrent of abuse. She had been beaten. She had been constantly attacked and put down. And she was living a very, very brutal life. But she was someone, because of her personality, saw the good in people. She obviously wanted to protect her children as well. That was that would have been her number one priority. But there was a history of domestic abuse there. The family would, would indicate, but when Jacqueline was being abused by her husband throughout those 15 years, she never rang the guards. The guardie didn't have any complaints of domestic abuse, so the guardie would have been unaware of the level of violence, unfortunately. She never turned up on our system as a lady who was the subject of domestic violence or where the guards had to call in respect to domestic violence. She always left the house herself with her children and got refuge in in various shelters, even as far away as Mullingar, and she never gave her right name. From anyone we spoke to, she was the life and soul of the party. She was very much loved by her parents. They all uh, got on very well. Her main concern was raising her children, giving them the best life she could, like most mothers and most women in domestic violence situations, their children was paramount to them and uh, she was no different and she suffered and uh, unfortunately, you know, women still suffer at the hands of people that can do this type of thing, you know. Pat was satisfied he could mark Michael down as his only suspect for Jacqueline's murder. And I was quite happy I had enough uh, reasonable suspicion to make an arrest and question him on the events of the night and there was a twist in the tale when uh, Michael McDonough's solicitor contacted uh, one of my detectives and said uh, Michael wants to meet the investigation team he wants to he wants to say something about what happened to his wife and we arranged to meet at Store Street Garda Station and Michael McDonough came along with his solicitor and came in and sat down and his solicitor said, uh, my client wishes to say something about the death of his wife, uh, which is against my advice. Pat was hopeful a confession was coming their way.
and Michael McDonough said yes we had a row that night she was going to leave me she came at me with a knife I had to defend myself I grabbed something from behind the chest freezer in the, and I hit her once with it he said that uh, he didn't intend to kill her that he loved his wife and everything he was saying I, I had no intention of killing my wife I didn't intend to kill my wife the next thing Michael said left the investigators completely bewildered. I had an experience then. I was out of my body floating and I can't remember anything after that. Like, do you know what I mean? His suspicions were aroused. Maybe it was the way Michael delivered the line and his emphasis on out of body. For now though, he'd have to park it. He needed to clarify some things. And I said, you hit her once. Yes, I hit her once uh, to defend myself. Um, So that's what his story was. I said, will you make a full statement to that? He said he would. So he was cautioned and he made a statement to that, that he did hit his wife. And that was it. So after he made those comments and he finished the statement, he was arrested then on suspicion of the murder of his wife and brought to uh, Dundalk Garda Station. To convict someone of murder, you have to prove that there was an intent. Now, I had no problem proving that given the the state of our body and that, like, you know, and the viciousness of the assault. But he was saying uh, he didn't mean to kill his wife. And it was quite evident to me, like, he was playing for a manslaughter charge and not murder. And uh, he wouldn't get life imprisonment, like, you know. Michael's statement about Jacqueline attacking him was both analysed and scrutinised by the Gardaí we could find no evidence of a knife whatsoever other than an old knife that was on top of a fuse board box in the hall and he probably had it there for his own protection that was analyzed so there was no evidence that he was attacked with a knife none whatsoever like you know every few weeks or so to blow off a bit of steam pat would meet up with a group of pals down in their local pub three or four pints of Guinness and a catch-up between friends. That was usually enough to help take his mind off work, if only for a few hours. The general rule was no work chat, and that went for all the men meeting up. Because of the savagery around her beating, Jacqueline's murder had gained some notoriety and had been covered in the press. Chancing their arm, A few of Pat's friends questioned him on the case. His policy was always no comment. Anything else would be disrespectful to the victim and their family. He can definitely throw a punch, one man said. I've seen some of his fights online. Still, Pat held firm and kept his mouth shut. Have you seen the size of him? He must be half mad on steroids, said another. Pat pushed back with another no comment, all friendly in nature between the men. But something in his brain ticked and he sat upright in his chair. Pat Murray knew very little about steroids or steroid use. Cocaine and heroin, they were the main drugs he dealt with in his region. He asked a friend what he knew about the drug and what effect they might have on someone, both physically and mentally. His friend went on to tell the group about a cyclist he knew 
that had been abusing steroids for years on end. He was fit as a fiddle, but prone to extraordinary outbursts of aggression and rage. Fits that borderline psychotic and were completely at odds with his regular demeanour. The next day or the day after I rang Michael Curtis and I spoke to him and I said, do you know anything about steroids? And he said, I know a little bit. He says, I know in America at present, a lot of murders that have occurred where guys were taking steroids, they're putting the blame on steroids for them becoming angry and killing their wives or doing violent things. And it's a thing called roid rage. You'd want to look it up. So I said, God, I'll do that, you know. So there's quite a lot on the internet about roid rage. And it's a phenomenon where guys who do bodybuilding and weights or whatever take steroids to improve their physique. There's sort of a split decision on whether it actually does or does not affect their minds. And some guys in America who had killed their wives and who were on taking steroids were uh, found not guilty of murder. So I said to myself, I can see it now. This is what he's trying to do. He knew the evidence was stacked against him. You know, his initial theory that the traders had come into the house just didn't stack up. You know, once I think the guards had compiled their case and built up this huge picture and this profile of domestic abuse over the years, it was stacked against him. A blood sample, among other things, had been taken from Michael 52 hours after Jacqueline had been pronounced dead. I wanted to know if there was steroid in that blood sample. So the forensic lab told me they couldn't do it. You'd have to go to the state lab. So I went to the state lab and I spoke with a scientist there, a fantastic woman, Julie Tierney. And uh, she was really very, very helpful. And I explained my situation. And she said, we can't do that here either. I said, golly. But she says, they do it in France and I can get it done for you. The samples were taken and sent to a laboratory in France, where it became apparent that Michael had three types of steroids, all within a system. She'd done out a report and she was able to explain that she believed two of the steroids were bodily generated, which were within your own system. And the third steroid was one that you would have had to have taken either tablet or injected or whatever. Pat asked whether she knew whether it could have caused a fit of aggression or an out-of-body experience, as Michael was hoping to latch on to. And she said, I can't, I'm not an expert, I don't know. You really want to get the, the top expert, which is a Professor David Cowan. Professor David Cowan is one of the world's leading anti-doping specialists. He was the lab director for the London 2012 Olympics and has been honoured internationally for cleaning up sports like athletics and cycling. When it came to information on steroids, nobody in the world came close to his knowledge. In all my investigations, I keep an open mind and I do appreciate what an expert can bring to a case. And this was no exception in this case. I needed someone to be able to tell me about steroids and tell me about the particular steroid that was in Michael McDonough's blood 52 hours after he killed his wife. Pat sent the blood sample over to King's College London, where Professor Cowan would run an analysis. He tasked him with one specific challenge. Can he prove whether the level of steroid 
present in Michael's body would have been sufficient enough to create a mind-altering effect. One strong enough to induce roid rage and cause him to savagely murder his wife. And he said, yes, I can. There is a mathematical formula and it can be done. Weeks went by as Pat eagerly awaited to hear Professor Cowan's hypothesis. So much rested on its findings. He wanted to deliver justice to Jacqueline's family and nothing else than a murder conviction would do so. On a weekday morning, he received a call from London. The results were in and Pat got exactly what he needed. He was able to do a report from me and said that yes, the steroid he had in his system was such a, a, a steroid and used by bodybuilders and that. That steroid in question was a substance called testosterone enanthate and is taken by human injection. It matched up with the vials taken from the house during the GTB search. And yes, that steroid would have been in his system at the time of his wife's death. And I can calculate that back. And the amount of steroid in his system at that time would have been so low, it wouldn't have had any effect whatsoever on his mental state, you know, and would have played no part in his actions while killing his wife. Pat was overjoyed with the outcome. He'd often been frustrated by the culture of keeping things internal within the Gardaí during an investigation. An inability to think outside of the box. But once again, his open mind enabled him to get the results that other detectives might not have. Oh, I was delighted. I said uh, to myself, you know, well, good man Michael, I said, I'm going to knock this defence off you. The report was compiled and sent to the DPP as additional evidence. Like all cases, it would have to be disclosed to the defence team before trial, and Pat got great enjoyment doing so. The most uh, qualified professor in Europe, in respect, if not the world, in steroids and the use of steroids, uh, had his name to that report. So it carried a huge amount of weight, and it undermined any attempt by them to say, well, he was out of his head, like, you know. The defence was now undermined and annihilated. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, some of the hallmarks of a successful Pat Murray investigation were as follows. A tenacious eye for detail, as well as bringing in expertise far beyond his own. But the last one was a case that delivered multiple twists and turns along the way. On February 9th, 2015, the case was set to be heard by Mr. Justice Paul Kearney in Dublin Central Criminal Court. It was approaching three years since Michael had subjected his wife to a torturous end to life. And we were ready and we were prepared and I was sitting there with Detective Garda, uh, Brendan Duffy, who'd done a lot of work on the case with me. And... Uh, we were sitting there and the barrister came over and said, I think this man is going to plead guilty. There'd be no need for a jury. No, that was the last thing I was, I was expecting he was going to fight it anyway, like, you know. He came out and he pleaded guilty. This left Pat and his colleagues 
completely stunned. The incentive to plead guilty to a murder conviction is minimal. Most defendants are better off riding their luck and hoping that the jury can be swayed into a manslaughter conviction. There is still some debate as to why Michael pleaded guilty that day, but six years on, Pat is of no doubt the importance that steroid analysis played. If I had not followed the strategy of looking at the steroid issue uh, and the case came to trial, uh, the steroid issue would come up and I'd be stuck there with a big red face. People said, oh, he didn't want to bring his daughter on the witness box and he didn't want to uh, put more stress on his children and that, you know. But what people don't realise is that his daughter was never a witness like she was traumatized the poor girl and she was in the care of the HSE and we needed to interview her and the HSE gave us permission to said she could be interviewed now so I had the qualified child interviewers prepared to interview her and when they were interviewing her she got distressed and I called off the interview there's no need putting this girl under and we tried a second time a couple of weeks later and she became distressed again and I pulled the plug and I said that's it she's not a witness now we just leave her you know and that's it so she was never going to be a witness. Jacqueline's family were consulted in the production of this episode although preferred not to be interviewed. It's been a few years since I spoke to them and even then there was a great sense of relief that number one he'd pleaded guilty but also that he'd been convicted of life also that they could now focus on the, the three children but they could also try and put their lives back together again because when he commits this terrible act in 2012 and 2015 before the case comes to court I mean it's, it's a horrendous time for the family um, their, their their daughter their sister she's just missed out on so many important family events over the years Christmas times birthdays as her kids grow older as well and I think they're relieved that he is in prison I think they did have concerns he could do this again because this man was inherently evil Nearly a year later, the guts of a year later, I got a phone call from Christy McDonough, who was Jacqueline's father. And he said, uh, myself and Winnie would like to meet you. I didn't know what they wanted to talk to me about, but they said to meet me in Apple Green filling station in Castle Bellingham. Christy said, myself and my wife Winnie appreciate all the guards did, and particularly you. And we never said thanks. And we want to look you now in the eye and thank you. And that's why we're here. And they said that they really appreciated it and they believed Jacqueline was in a better place now. Christy and Winnie had one final request. They wanted to know if Pat would visit Jacqueline's grave. She's buried there in St Francis's there in Navan. And I went there and it's a, lo- a lovely grave with a lovely seat beside it and I remember sitting down and you know I suppose I spoke to her in a way and said you know I'm the guy that sort of investigated you know the, the crime that was perpetrated on you and that and there was a very peaceful feeling there actually very very peaceful and when I spoke to Winnie I rang Winnie and told her I had visited the grave and it was very very peaceful And she said, it's amazing that everyone that goes there says the same thing. They have a good feeling of peace. And I said, well, I certainly felt that there. 
and she said well Jacqueline would have known you're there and you know your your visit would be appreciated next time on the making of a detective now that my mind made up I was leaving going there's nothing going to change me from that even if they came back and they said we'll promote you five more ranks up or whatever this that you know I couldn't care less I had me fill of the workings and the nepotism in the guards the making of a detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun this episode was written and produced by me Ian Doyle with Gavin Dowd on research We want to inform you that we're going to be taking a short break over the new year. But keep an eye on your podcast feed. We'll be coming back with the last instalment in our series. The 2013 shooting of Garda Adrian Dunahoo, a colleague and close personal friend of Pat's. I was his undercover most of the time of our careers. He informed me that Mr. Brady, you know, he allegedly killed an officer in your country. Listen, we're still trying to find out where he is located at. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Detective Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books.